Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We live in fearful times that are amplified or minimized based on which online echo chambers we join. Is there a better time to be reminded of who's in control? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Miracles of Jesus with this sermon entitled The Authority of Christ Over Creation which covers Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Father, thanks for this time together this morning. Thank you for the, the great opportunity it is each and every week to come into this place, to worship you, uh, to put ourselves before you in a posture of dependence and say, oh God, we need you. Uh, we pray that wouldn't be just a, a Sunday thing, but that that would be an everyday thing. But this is special because we gather with your people, the church. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd meet with us as we open your word, as we consider your truth according to your scriptures. Would you, would you press, press the truth of your word deep into our hearts and to our minds? Change us, O oh God. Give us wisdom. Give us perspective. Give us sight to see your beauty. So, Lord, we ask for that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So along these lines of fear, um, it would be appropriate for me to confess to you uh, that I'm, I'm fearful. I have struggled and battled against uh, what I would often call ir- irrational fear in my life, somewhat sometimes rational, but a lot of times irrational. So um, full disclosure here, I have often described myself as a recovering hypochondriac. Um, I have been convinced on many occasions that I'm dying from something, and uh, I can look back at it humorously now, but when it was happening, um, it was anything but humorous. I was absolutely convinced this is how I'm going to go, and uh, my last 10 years of life have been a little better. I've been, I've been much better with this than I was in the first 30. I can remember from the earliest of ages being convinced that something bad health-wise was happening to me, and it didn't take much. I can remember being um, a junior in high school, and uh, I, was, I had the flu. I was out of school for about a week. When I came back, the English class that I was in had been doing term papers. I was behind on that, but I still had to proofread one of my neighbors in the class there, and that was part of what the teacher was having us do. And so he was writing his term paper on HIV AIDS. And in the first page, he lists the symptoms. And I became convinced I had AIDS. (laughs) I didn't understand how the disease worked because I stopped reading after the first page because I was pretty much having a panic attack because I didn't fully realize, as the paper I'm sure described, that AIDS mimics flu-type symptoms. And anyway, I had AIDS for a time. Um, And I don't want to joke about that in a way. I want to be sensitive to that. But I was convinced it talks about the irrationality of where we can go with fear. I was convinced that I had. I've, I've been convinced that I've had many different types of cancer, many types of uh, liver disease at one point. I mean, you name it, I've probably had it or, you know, convinced that I had it. And it was such a fear-driven, paralyzing experience. Another thing I'm really fearful of is um, severe weather. I'm that guy too. Um, there's a reason for that one. This, this one isn't quite as irrational. Uh, we lived in Tuscaloosa in 2011 when the massive tornado that came through and, and just destroyed a big portion of the city 
uh, came through, and it just missed a couple of miles south of where we were living at the time. And we had our little ones. Um, Annie had not been born yet, but our other three, uh, very young, uh, in the uh, the stair under the stairs closet in our in our home that didn't have a basement. And we had bike helmets on them, and we're huddled up. And somehow, in the midst of it all, we didn't lose power. And so we're watching through our laptop the live feed. Uh, from the local news station who had a camera on the tallest building there in downtown Tuscaloosa. And we watched as they had this camera pointed on the tornado half mile wide coming straight towards our city, not knowing which way it was going to go, north or south, towards us or below us, south of us. It went just south of us, but many that we know in our church family and friends were hit by the storm. And I can remember looking down at one point as it was approaching and involuntarily shaking and just saying over and over again, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus. And so we live with severe weather PTSD in our home. And Rachel and I are probably, uh, admittedly, a little too quick to say, get to the basement, because now we buy houses with basements. Um, (laughs) Even if it's not a severe weather threat, but we're dealing with that fear to trust God, the God of creation, over my body, the one who is in authority and rules over me and my body, the one who is in who, who rules and reigns and is an authority over all of creation, including nature itself, to trust him. The point is, that's, I think at some level, that's true, true for all of us. As I've pastored people over the years, it's, it's interesting how often our deepest fears, those that are seated deeply within us, are, are oftentimes those two categories, illness, health and illness, and catastrophe. And what's common about both of those? Both of those are things that we don't feel like we can control. That they feel as though they are out of our control. We fear catastrophe, whether it be weather, whether it be uh, an irrational fear of a plane crash or a, a car accident or whatever it may be. That we live in that world. And it's not just a fear uh, that, that passes Many of us live with a fear that grips and sustains and holds and paralyzes and keeps us from flourishing, keeps us from thriving the way that God intended us to. What the scriptures point us to time and time again is that there's one, there's one who speaks directly to our fear. He speaks in the midst of the chaos. He speaks in the midst midst of the irrationality that we can so uh, be consumed with that manifests in this fear. And interestingly enough, ironically enough, he actually calls us to fear him. He helps us see that maybe fear is a part of certainly the way he's designed us, but our issue is not so much fear, it's misplaced fear. It's fearing the wrong things rather than out of awe and reverence fearing him. And again, ironically, as we fear him and all of his power and all of his authority and all of his majesty and all of his glory, as we fear him, we actually experience the very peace that we so long for. He is the Prince of Peace. His peace is the peace that surpasses all understanding. And it's only found in his presence. If you were with us last week, you know that we started a new series called The Miracles of Jesus. And what we're doing is we're walking through the book of Mark. Now, we're not walking verse by verse or even passage by passage through the book of Mark. But we're asking you 
member and attender alike, uh, to be reading through the book of Mark with us so that you're, as we pick up on these miracle stories and teach them, you're reading them and hearing them in context of the whole gospel of Mark. And so uh, if you have your Bible, we want you reading on that on a daily basis with the plan that we gave you. Last week we had some bookmarks that had the reading plan for the book of Mark in uh, in the bulletins this week. Uh, we don't have those, but the easiest way to find the re- reading plan uh, is the app. Go to the Perimeter app, uh, download that from, if you don't have it from, uh, it's available for, for iTunes and Google and whatever else, you can download the Perimeter app, access the reading plan, access all kinds of stuff, our prayer points of what we're praying through as a church right now, and uh, you can see that. We also made available to you last week, and we still have a lot of these left, and so please go by and pick one up. Uh, this Gospel According to Mark uh, Bible Journal where you have the scripture on the left side and then a blank page on the right side for you to be able to write down notes and questions, do whatever you want there. Uh, But it helps drive home what you're reading and being able to journal. And so uh, the parameters we gave there were simply if you are new to the church, this is for you, please grab one. You can define for yourself what new is. Uh, And if you're uh, investigating the faith, if you're here more out of curiosity and would not even define yourself perhaps as a Christian, Uh, then please take one of these. We want you to have one. Uh, But for those who are members, been here with us for a while, uh, hopefully you have a Bible. uh, Use your Bible to read through the book of Mark. One thing, one last thing I want to mention on that. Even after we get through this five-week series, as we get into Palm Sunday and into Easter Sunday, those two sermons will also be out of the book of Mark and our Holy Week devotional guide that we put out each year that leads through a week uh, Monday through Sunday, Palm Sunday through, Palm, uh, through Easter Sunday, uh, we have a devotional every day that our staff have written here, and that is also out of the book of Mark. So everything's focused on Mark right now, so be, uh, be focused, if you will, on Mark yourself in your personal time uh, with the Lord reading his scriptures. So if you did not hear last week's sermon, I would encourage you to go back, listen to it, because I gave some introductory thoughts and uh, things there around the book of Mark, who he is how it fits in with the other Gospels, and so uh, be sure and check that out uh, if you were not here and missed that last week. Here's what I want to pick up this morning. I want to start in Mark chapter 3 and look at two miracles this morning, one in Mark chapter 3, the other in Mark chapter 4. Here's what we're doing with these miracles. As we touch on these miracles and teach them, we're asking one specific question, and that's this. What do these miracles teach us? What do they reveal to us about the authority of Jesus? What do we see about Christ and his authority manifested in these miracles? And so this morning, uh, we're going to start with one uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, where Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. It says this, verse 1, Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let me just hit some highlights of what's going on in this text before we move to the one at the end of chapter 4. Here you have Jesus. He's, he's back in the synagogue. It's 
most likely, although we're not entirely sure because Mark doesn't tell us, but most likely still the synagogue in Capernaum. If you were with us last week, you know that uh, I told the story about how Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters of ministry. He may have had a house there. Uh, whether it was his house or not, it was, it was pro- possibly a family member's house, maybe even possibly his mom, Mary, his mother. Uh, most likely, as best we can tell, probably moved to Capernaum after uh, his earthly father Joseph died when he was a boy, most likely, uh, and they moved from Nazareth. Maybe Peter's house, we don't know, but this was kind of Jesus' home as he did his ministry throughout Galilee. And so he's back in the synagogue and he's preaching. And as we noted last week, he's preaching with authority, authority like they had never seen before. As whenever a scribe would open the scriptures, he would preach, but not like Jesus. Jesus was now preaching with an authority unlike they had ever seen. So he's back in the synagogue, he's preaching and teaching the, the scriptures, the Old Testament again, and as he's doing that, another crowd has gathered to hear this tremendous teacher before them that they're all trying to figure out, who is this man, this carpenter from Nazareth? And so here among the crowd in the synagogue is a man with a withered hand. And we don't know much from this passage about who this man is, but we can uh, cite some extra-biblical Sources that indicate that this man was a stonemason, okay, which is interesting because that's what Jesus was, by the way. Now, you may say, well, I thought he was a carpenter, and yes, carpenter in, in Israel in the first century was very different from a carpenter now uh, than the way that we think carpenter. We think carpenter, we think one who works with wood. Uh, if you've been to Israel, you know there's, there ain't a whole lot of wood. There's stone everywhere. The soil is incredibly rocky. There are rocky out croppings everywhere. Uh, They call it Jerusalem stone, actually, because it is so unique, this kind of white stone, limestone-looking rock and and stone that that is used even to this day to build pretty much everything in that area. And so Jesus, as a carpenter, would have worked with stone, not with wood. And so perhaps there's an affinity with this man who's there that he doesn't only recognize him because of his withered hand, but perhaps even because they share the same livelihood. But whatever the issue, he's there. Maybe he's born with this, this condition. Could have been an accident from his livelihood, from his occupation as a stonemason. Maybe he's born this way. But he's there, he's in the crowd, and the Pharisees are watching. The Pharisees are the ones, if you, if you don't remember this, the Pharisees are a Jewish sect who are kind of the legalist of the day. Not kind of, but they are. They enforce the Mosaic and Levitical law from the Old Testament, and they do so in a way that is mostly condemning and self-righteous. They are incredibly religious people, and they think that they are aiming straight at the heart of God, but what Jesus is revealing to them over and over again is that they're missing uh, significantly the heart of God. That they've become so steeped in religiosity, and they've added so much to the law, traditions of their own that are not in Scripture, Traditions in which they are actually beginning to hold and have held uh, even more in, in higher esteem than the law itself, and then holding people to it in a way that doesn't bring them life, but actually brings them condemnation. And so that's what's happening here, actually. They're watching Jesus. They hate Jesus because Jesus is a threat to them. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But they hate him also because he doesn't fit their paradigm of who they think the long-awaited Messiah, rescuer, Savior should be. 
And so they're looking for a way to catch him. And one of the traditions that they had added to the law was that you can't heal on the Sabbath. But more specifically, okay, you can heal, but only if someone's life is in danger, if they're going to lose their life. Otherwise, it can wait till tomorrow. Can't heal on the Sabbath. Now, the passage right before we read at the end of chapter 2 is a passage where Jesus is walking through the grain fields with his disciples, and they're talking along the way, and as they're doing it, the disciples are grabbing heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath, which, again, Pharisees don't like that. They say you can't do that on the Sabbath. And Jesus says at the end of that story, right before chapter 3, last verse, verse 27 of chapter 2, he says, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's presenting himself to them as saying, look, uh, the Sabbath is not for you to make what you want it to be. The Sabbath is, is mine. I am the Lord. I decide how the Sabbath is to be uh, honored, held. And you've gotten so caught up, Pharisees, in all your rules and regulations that you've completely missed the heart of God for the Sabbath. Uh, Should I turn you back? Maybe Jesus even said this. Should I turn you back to Isaiah 56 and Isaiah 58 where the the heart of God in the Sabbath is clearly displayed? Uh, Are you remembering that? And so Jesus is so good. He asks such pointing questions that trap them. They're trying to trap him. He's trapping them in return with his questions, not directives, not statements, but questions. He's so good at questions. And he asked them a question. So, Pharisees, you rulers, you, you makers of the law, am I not to do good on the Sabbath? And he knows with that simple question that now they're stuck. Because now they, if they say, well, yeah, that's what we're saying. You can't do good on the Well, hold up. We can't say that because we do think you can do good on the Sabbath, but then we don't want you doing this good on the Sabbath because this is against our traditions. And, okay, I don't know what to say here. And so they were silent. And Jesus is pressing in on the heart of the Pharisees to say, what have you become? You're so steeped in religiosity, you're missing the freedom that the kingdom of God offers as one who knows their God. So what does he do? Calls this man out. Jesus could have healed him just silently, even as he's teaching and his power and his authority over creation. He could have just had the man healed right there on the spot with no fanfare, but he actually wants to call him out publicly in front of everybody so that all the Pharisees can see, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one who created the Sabbath. Sometimes we forget that Jesus is not this person who just came around 2,000 years ago. He is the eternal Son of God. So when, when creation came into being, it was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who created and who established the rhythm of a Sabbath. It's why Genesis 1.26 says, let us make God in our own image. That's, that's not him and the angels. That's the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying, look, I'm the author and creator of this Sabbath thing. I'm Lord over it. Don't you tell me what I can and can't do on the Sabbath. Hey, come here, man with a withered hand. And as he's holding this, hand, this man's hands in his, in his hands and he's staring at him in the face, he takes a pause to stare at the Pharisees. And he asks them that question, and they are silent. And then he glares at them with anger. 
And then quickly behind the anger is sorrow. He grieves at the condition of their heart. It's interesting, in the original language, in the Greek that this was written in, the tenses there indicate that the, the anger was brief and momentary, but the, uh, I'm sorry, that the anger was, was momentary, but the grief and the sorrow was continuous. It's a God of compassion. Oh, that your hearts would be soft, that you would see and believe who I am, the Lord of the Sabbath. And so he heals, he displays his power, his authority over creation in healing an image bearer, one who is made in the very image of God, and he heals them right in front of all of them. And the Pharisees respond with immediately going out and holding counsel with Herodians. <laughs> you're not laughing because you don't, you're going, oh, uh, should I know what that means? Here's what that means. They hate the Herodians, and the Herodians hate them. These are people that are faithful to Rome. These are people that are faithful to Herod Antipas, who was the tetrarch uh, over Galilee, which means that they were enemies of the Pharisees. But they had one thing in common. They didn't want Jesus taking charge. They didn't want to bow the knee to the authority of Christ. So let's get together on the one thing we do have in common and let's conspire because the Pharisees needed Roman authority to execute Jesus. They couldn't do that on their own. And so they conspire with the Herodians to figure out a way to destroy Christ. There's more I want to say about this story, but I want to get us to the next one, make some observations, and then put the two together. So the next story comes, the familiar story of Jesus calming a storm. It's at the end of chapter 4. It says this, verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? So it may have been the same day. Most likely it was a day or two later. Jesus is teaching. And he's teaching on this boat that is offshore of the Sea of Galilee. And he's uh, he's teaching to a multitude on the hillside. And then there's boats all around him as well. And he's standing for hours upon hours throughout the day teaching. And he gets to the end of that day, and he's absolutely exhausted. And he needs needs to get away from the crowds. I get this. I love y'all, but after preaching three times in a weekend on Sunday afternoons, I want to be alone, and I want to take a nap. And I'm thinking, that's just after three sermons. Jesus had been preaching all day. And sometimes we forget that, yes, Jesus, yes, he's 100% divine. He's God in the flesh, incarnate. But yet, he is 100% human. He's man, He gets tired, hungry, thirsty, just like we do. And so he's exhausted at the end of this day. And he's finished teaching, and he says, hey, let's go to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, the the more desolate side where not as many people live because that's where the hillsides are more sheer, more straight up, where people can't live like they do on the western side where Capernaum and other fishing villages are. And so they go across. There's other boats that go with them, and Jesus falls asleep quickly which is interesting 
Because here's what a boat looked like back in that day. This is a model of a first century fishing boat. Now, uh, I know it's hard to say, well, how big exactly is that? So um, when I was there in Israel a few years ago, they have, they have uh, you know, models, life-size models of these. And in, I'm 6'2". It came to about mid-thigh on me. And it's just not a very big vessel. So don't think big boat that they're getting in. This is a really small and probably indicates why there were many boats that went across to the other side. Not just one, because not all of them could fit in one boat. But Jesus is sleeping, and you look at that, and you go, uh, where? Where? Uh, okay, gosh, he must have been incredibly tired. I would say this as well. Yes, he was exhausted, but I would say, too, Jesus has union with the Father in such a way to where he is able to rest completely at peace, knowing that he, the Father, is in control. Even in the midst of a great storm, these are fishermen, professional fishermen, many of these disciples. And they've been in storms in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and about seven and a half miles wide. It's fresh water. It's a lake. It's a big lake. When you hear sea, don't think salt water. That's a term that they used back then for just big body of water. And it sits 680 feet below Mediterranean sea level. So it's down in this depression, hills all around it, crevices, little channels of air coming through the valleys. And so what would happen fairly often is that you would have warm water hovering above, uh, warm air hovering above the water. And then you'd have cool air with a storm coming in through those valleys. And when they would collide, it would create quite a storm on the sea. But apparently this was one that was greater than they had seen to the point that they were frantic and don't you know that they had tried everything in their expertise as fishermen to fix the situation for the boat not to sink but they couldn't to the point that finally they said we got to wake up Jesus and they wake him up with an accusation they wake him up and they say do you not care do you not care Jesus and you can finish the sentence however you want to they say do you not care that we're perishing, but this is a question that we accuse God of all the time, is it not? As we deal with the storms in our life, we come to him with the very same accusation. Do you not care, God? Do you not care that I've been single for this many years and that I long to have a spouse, but you haven't given me one? Do you not care? Do you not care that I long to have children and you know that it's the desire of my heart, yet you are keeping me from getting pregnant? Do you not care? Do you not care, God, that I have struggled massively with depression and anxiety and medication doesn't seem to be helping and I just can't get better, but you're not changing it? Do you not care? Do you not care that my biggest fear in life is that I would get some kind of disease that would take my life early and I wouldn't be able to get to see my kids grow up and yet you've given it to me? Oh God, do you not care? Do you not care, oh God, that my parents are getting divorced and the, the, the thing I want more than anything is for my family to stay together? Do you not care that you've taken a father from me, a mother from me? God, do you not care? We struggle just like the disciples do. It may not be wind and rain and water lapping into our boats, but it's something that's sinking us. And we go to God and we say, do you not care? And God is so gracious says that Jesus awoke, which means he stood up. And he walked to the front of the boat and he just said two words. Peace. Hush. That's what it, it says be still in your Bible, but the word literally means hush. And all at once, immediately, the wind and the water 
experiences a great calm. If you've been on water before, you know even if the wind is whipping, if it dies down, the water doesn't. It takes it a while, but all at once, it all becomes calm at once. And Jesus has now ex- exercised his authority, not over just humans, not over just image bearers, but over creation and nature itself. And maybe the disciples at this point, perhaps, probably not yet, because it took them a while to get all this stuff, but maybe they're starting to connect some dots going, oh my goodness, this really is him. This is the son of God because, wait a second, God spoke creation into being. He just simply said, let there be light and light came. And he said, let there be land and land came. And he said, let there be water and water came and animals and birds of the air and fish of the sea. And it happened and his authority was on such display at creation that the God of the universe can speak and it happened. So here he is right here on my boat and he's speaking a word and creation responds to the authority of the son of God and it stops. But he follows that up with a question, and it's not to the disciples, not a condemning question, but a caring question. He says, why are you so afraid, guys? Are you still of such little faith? Again, not condemning, not like, come on, guys. It's, it's this, guys, really? I, do you really think I don't care? If I had not calmed the storm, I'm with you. I'm here. My presence is enough. And he stood up and he showed that he had authority over the storm. But what we know from the rest of Scripture is that he may or may not calm your storms now. He will. There will be a day when every violent wind is rebuked and every... uh, overwhelming wave is made calm and for all of eternity we will be in peace submitting to the to the one who is in authority over it all and there will be a day when all storms of this broken life are calmed and it may happen for us in this life it may not but the bottom line is this he is with us and he is enough I love what John Newton says he says if the Lord be with us we have no cause to fear His eyes upon us, his ear open to our prayer, his grace sufficient, his promise unchangeable. He says, I'm with you. My presence brings peace. The disciples in the midst of seeing his authority exercised over all creation and in the midst of seeing perhaps a little bit more of who he is, they're overwhelmed. They're amazed at who's standing in their midst. It says that they respond with great fear. But this time it's not a fear that paralyzes or incapacitates. It's a fear that's actually centered on the Prince of Peace. It's a fear that they just worship. And they say, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves, the sea obey him? I want us in these stories, I want us to recognize how we are a part of both the Pharisaical dilemma and the disciples' dilemma. I want us to see how we're like the Pharisees in the first story. 
First point I want you to take from that story is this. We fear Christ's authority when our ability to control our lives is threatened. We fear Christ's authority when our ability to control our lives is threatened. This is what's going on with the Pharisees. They're afraid of Jesus. They fear his authority. Why? Because if he really is who he says he is, if he really is the Son of Man, if he really is the Son of God, if he really does uh, have all authority, then that has great implications on their lives. It changes everything. It has implications on their livelihood. It has implications on their very religious structure. It changes everything about their lives to where they now have to bow to knee, the knee to Him and submit to His authority and to His lordship when they want authority and lordship over themselves. You see that present within the Pharisees, what's going on in their heart, and, I, and we go, oh my goodness, that's me. When I begin to tune into the authority of Christ, when I begin to see who He is as Lord over all, the Sabbath, everything, I also begin to see that, wow, that means that uh, a lot needs to change in my life. The things that I want to hold on to, that I think, that I have this perception as though I control. I think I have this ability to control something, but Jesus is saying, give that to me. I'm the authority. I'm Lord. Surrender. Give it all to me. What is it that you're gripping onto? What is it that you're holding onto so tightly that you know Jesus is saying, I'm Lord over that. Give it to me. Trust me. I know you're afraid. I know you're fearful of what this could mean for you. I know it's leading you, you into an uncomfortable place, but I promise you, I promise you I love you. And I promise you where I'm leading you is actually going to give you the very thing that you long for that you think holding on to is going to get you but never will. We're like the Pharisees. We actually fear Christ's authority because of our perceived control over our lives. But we're also like the disciples in the storm. We fear that Christ has lost his authority when our inability to control our lives is exposed. We think we have control over our lives, and then God brings something into our lives that shows us, hey, uh, the perceived control you had is, was actually an illusion. We don't have control over anything. And so in the midst of the chaos of a storm in our lives, we actually fear not losing control, but that he's lost control. We fear that he has somehow maybe forgotten us, that he's asleep, certainly can feel like that, right? In the midst of storms of life, we go, Jesus, are you just asleep? What are you doing? And he says to us the same thing he says to the disciples. He says, why are you so afraid? Are you still of such little faith? Don't you know that I'm with you? Don't you know that I'm Lord over this storm? Don't you know that even though it appears as though I'm sleeping, I'm the one who controls this stuff? And even the storms have purpose? Do you trust me? Would you take your fear and would you center it on me that you may experience my peace? You know how we, you know, how we know that Jesus cares? without a doubt. 
as he points us over and over again, and he couldn't do this quite yet with the disciples because it hadn't happened yet, but for us, he continually points us back again and again to the cross. You want to know if I care? Stare at the cross. I care in more ways than you could ever imagine. I care in ways that we could never put fully to words and description. His love and his care for us is beyond measure. He says to us, uh, you ask me, don't you care that I'm perishing? He says, I provided a way for you because I care so much that you would never perish but have eternal life. Oh, I care. I care more than you can comprehend. Look at the cross. See my care for you. That I would take the greatest and most violent of storms that the world would ever know the wrath of God in all of its entirety, and I would pull that and invite that and receive that on myself so that you may not have to experience it yourself. Oh, I care. I care so much. You know, the question that the disciples posed there at the end of the passage is the question that you and I have to wrestle with. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? How do you answer that question? Who is Jesus to you? Is he who he says he is? Is, the, is he the one that has authority over all things, over creation itself? Or is he just a good teacher that you say, you know what, I'll try to just mimic my life after him. God's not interested in our mimicking him. God's interested and are worshiping him, and are following him, and are bowing our knee to his lordship. I hope that your response will not be like those of the Pharisees who said, uh, we fear him and out of our fear we reject him. But it will be like that of the disciples where we say we fear him and in our fear we worship him. He is good and he is all so powerful. That's what we're going to do in the 10 minutes we have remaining. We're going to respond with worship. I was in a seminar yesterday with Sean Lucas. Tremendous, tremendous time with him as he led us through the gospel and race. And he said, Did you, have you ever noticed in the Bible that whenever something amazing happens, God's, people's, God's people always resp- respond with song? Uh, I, I should be able to talk right now. Uh, always respond with singing when something amazing happens in the Bible in the history of the church, in the history of God's people, uh, when we see who God is, oftentimes it's like, it's like a musical breaks out. And we just start to sing his praises because of his glory. So we've seen in the word the glory of Jesus. Let's sing to him now. Father, thank you for who you are. Jesus, thank you that you are the Lord over all creation, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of nature, the Lord over our bodies, the Lord over everything that we fear, you are Lord. Father, we thank you that you've made some promises. You've promised that you will calm all the storms one day, but you've also promised us that even in the ones you don't calm now, you're with us. And your presence is enough. Calm our fears as we experience your peace. Teach us, O Lord. Teach us more of who you are and shape us into your image. Give us the ability only through your power within us to trust. 
We love you. Be praised as we sing to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.